Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're headed to the ancient Sahara, which looked very different than it does today. Which is a bit of an understatement. Today, as I learned, the Sahara is the world's largest source of mineral dust. Oh, so (laughs) I thought that was my dog. (laughs) Nope. Turns out it's a desert. It's big. It's dry. And that sand gets everywhere, farther than you'd think. The Saharan air layer extends between 5,000 and 20,000 feet in the atmosphere over the Sahara. When winds are especially strong, the dust can be transported several thousand miles, according to NOAA, the, you know, the oceanic. The patriarch? No, not, not that one. I mean, he... The uh, Oceanic Association, whatever that oh, acronym stands Oh, the National for. Oceanic and Atmospheric yeah, that's the one. Okay. Yep. Uh, so when winds are especially strong, the dust can be transported several thousand miles, reaching as far as the Caribbean, Florida, and the U.S. Gulf Coast, like from Whoa. the African Sahara. Whoa. The, <laughs> the dry air associated with the Saharan air layer often suppresses hurricane and tropical storm development. So that's cool. Large quantities of dust entering the Atlantic during the summer hurricane season create a stable layer of dry sinking air. Which prevents storms from spinning up or gaining strength. Each year, are you ready for this? Over 100 (laughs) million tons of Saharan dust gets blown across the Atlantic, some of it reaching as far as the Amazon River Basin. The minerals in the dust replenish nutrients in rainforest soils, which are continually depleted by drenching tropical rains. What? So sands from the Sahara nourish Amazonian plants what <laughs> nature is wild oh what <laughs> but well you know save that mind explosion because we're traveling back in time to when things were not so dusty oh what happened to the amazon no no the sahara but i'm just thinking well oh my god well i don't know I, yeah i don't know it was less enriched i don't know I don't know if anyone's done a um, like a paired study of those two ecosystems. Oh that would God. be interesting. How would you even test that? I don't That's know. Not, that's oh beyond God. the scope of this episode. What? <laughs> Hang on. Before you have a crisis, that's this not what we're dealing with today. This is why I anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for science. So now it's time for a new game that I call Translate That Paragraph. <laughs> I'm oh going to no. like create a little musical sting for that for when we have it in the future, because we've had it before, in which I read a short excerpt from a scholarly article and then translate it so everyone can actually understand what it's about. (laughs) If only academic types writing articles would do that in the first place. Oh my God, this is like that linguistics study. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but I digress. So here's the science. 
During the early Holocene, that's the time period we're in now, and previous interglacial periods, interglacial periods are periods when most of the Earth's seawater is not bound up in glaciers. Okay, so large parts of the Sahara were wetter and greener than today. The evidence for episodic wet periods in the now very dry Sahara, thank you, and especially during the early to mid-Holocene African Humid Period, or AHP, is incontrovertible and is based on literally hundreds of published studies and multiple reviews. This includes sedimentologic evidence such as widespread green mudstones, subaqueous tufas and travertines, evaporites and organic-rich mats, geomorphic evidence for abandoned river systems, some detected only by radar. Those are called radar rivers. Faunal evidence from snails, diatoms, ostracods, and large mammals and reptiles paleofloral evidence from pollen and archaeological evidence for widespread occupation of the inhospitable modern Sahara in the Middle and Upper Paleolithic and Neolithic periods. Okay. What? So, translation for some of those terms. Subaqueous tufas. (laughs) Uh, So, a tufa is a porous rock formation that occurs when minerals precipitate out of water, typically around something like a natural spring. So they, they're very, very kind of spongy rock, not in, not in, they're not squishy, but they're very, like I said, porous. And, um, that, that type of rock is also called tough. You might see it called tough, T-U-F-F, which is just an English version of tufa. Um, so a subaqueous tufa is one of these rock formations that originally formed underwater. So around the type of springs that feed a body of water. So these would be formations that are now exposed and visible, but we know how they form. So when you see this type of thing, you can infer that there was once a water source or some sort of body of water there. Travertine is a rock that is also formed of minerals that precipitate out of water. And so there's a theme here. Travertine is also often used in architecture. There's lots of use of it in the classical world, I think. But then again, I'm very rusty on my classical architecture. So well, and we're tufa, not going to quote me on that. Tufa was used a lot in in Roman architecture. Yeah, it seems like it would be very... Well, it's because it's so porous, it doesn't seem like... Well, what do I know? I'm not an architect. Um, I'm just saying things on a podcast for, for all of the internet. So I'm going to rein in my wild speculations <laughs> that I say authoritatively. Um, there are some things in that paragraph that I read that are exactly what they sound like. For example, green mudstones. They're green and they're formed from the gradual compression of what was formerly a uh, an underwater mud layer so you know that how how um sedimentary rock forms you know gradual things that were underwater or were deposited by water get eventually you know pushed down and compressed into rock by the pressure of the earth and so that's what happens there and so in that case it's mud and an organic rich mat is i know him (laughs) does he sell supplements I think he might sell supplements on Instagram. But this particular <laughs> this particular organic rich mat is exactly what it sounds like. It's it's the remains of a lot of decayed organic material and it often leaves a dark stripe in sediments. So again, something that's turned to rock, but it carries a, a darker tone. Oh. 
Um, diatoms. Maybe we can put a picture of some diatoms up on the social media when this episode comes out. I love them. They are so pretty. So these are the remains of single-celled algae. So you have to look under a microscope to see them. But they have a wall of silica inside their cellular structure when they're alive. And so when they die, silica basically lasts forever, long after the little algae are dead. So it's basically like little skeletons. And so you can see them deposited in sediments and in, in soils and You'll often see diatomaceous earth sold for like, I think it's sold for like pool filters. I might be making that up, but I feel like it's... Uh, and it's also used with um, gardening. Yeah. Like with with um, fortifying soils. Yeah. Um, I have a very possibly stupid question. No such thing. Hit me. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> so we got diatoms. Yeah. And they've, and they're made of silica. Well, well what's, left of, what's, what's yeah, left yeah. of them is the silica. Mm-hmm. Sand. Mm-hmm. Also silica. Correct. Sand diatoms? No. Okay. Sand, sand is essentially, well, I mean, maybe there's some diatoms in there. I don't know. I mean, there's lots of algae in the ocean, and so I'm well, sure some of it could be diatoms. But the, these silica makes you know, up lots of things. Because maybe somebody listening is thinking. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's, that's legit. So silica makes up lots of things. Silica makes up a lot of different parts of plants. Silica also, you know, makes up a lot of rock. A lot of that is because silica from ancient, 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 ancient millions of year old plants eventually makes its way into becoming rocks. So like, for example, the silica that makes up um, chert and flint Mm-hmm. A lot of that comes from the remains of sea sponges millions of years ago. Um, so it's all kind of cyclical. What? But in the same I'm way I'm having that such a hard time not swearing right now because this is... You're doing a great job. Wh- what? Well, okay. So, you know, in the same way that dinosaurs eventually become petroleum, right? And that's because of processes that happen over millions of years. Yeah. And yeah, well, same idea. The basic component silica, when it comes out of plants and you know sponges and and whatever else, gradually, like like everything else that that sort of goes through this process, makes its way through the the crushing pressure of the the rock of the Earth's mantle and crust. Not the mantle; the mantle is magma. Right. Um, but then. Um, yeah, it, that silica can become other things. So I I can't confidently say that the origin of all chert and and flint and things like that is ancient sea sponges. I just know that that's the case for um, like southwestern Europe because I learned that when I was there digging, and I also had a moment of like, ah, oh my god, yeah, yeah, it's really cool. But it's in the same way that like certain. Um, molecular compounds can make up lots and lots of different structures and look completely different. So for example, sorry for your brain in advance, but like calcium carbonate makes up things like the solid, the the non-organic portion of our bones. It Mm -hmm. also makes up a lot of the structure of the human eye. It also can make up, you know, limestone. It also, you know, so occurring in these different forms, similar molecules can 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 be everywhere. <laughs> you okay? Yeah. Cool. Um, I have a couple more. Well, one more thing to define. Yeah. And so I mentioned ostracods. Sea mon- they're sea monkeys. 
Yeah, they're basically sea monkeys. They're teensy little fossil shrimpies. Yeah, tiny brine shrimp. Man, sea monkeys. What a wild thing. <laughs> that was that was an episode of Behind the Bastards, too. Uh, and that was that was a wild episode. Um, so to sum up that whole paragraph, minus our brief diversion. Into let's, like, just, let's just let's pack it up. Good night. <laughs> yeah, well, to, to sum all of that up, there are remains of lots of different life forms in sediments in part of the Sahara that are now very, very dry. But those life forms are ones that typically prefer wet environments. So whenever they were alive, the Sahara had to have been more like the types of environments that those life forms prefer, which is wet, green, and squishy. Yeah. How'd I do? That, that's great. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. That really hey, sets up that really sets up here. well this entire thing of sort of how we how we've come to to know that at some point that was wet. <laughs> how else do um, we know that though? Well, we know that from um, some historical records and from um, sort of myth. And what? No, no, no! Like actual myth. No, I, of like I know. Local I know communities. what you And then historical records that are themselves mythic. By which I mean Herodotus. <laughs> That's um, why I was laughing. Yeah, that that first hinted at uh, a lot of this um, evidence, a lot of the research into um, the Green Sahara is relatively recent. Like within the past ten years, they've found more mm -hmm. like paleo lakes and more rivers and things. Like they're learning more and more about the. Um, the morphology and the geology of the Sahara of the past. But I say green Sahara very specifically. And the English patient is relevant here again because the titular patient Any was... Any excuse. <laughs> um, that fictional character was based on the Hungarian explorer, Laszlo Almasi, who first coined the term green Sahara in his 1934 book called The Unknown Sahara. I feel like we should reiterate here, uh, just in case folks didn't listen to uh, our book review or a book club episode, that's a real guy. Like he appears as a character in the English patient, English patient, but that was a real person. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and it's sort of, um, a very different person than yeah. the one put forward yeah. in, in the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, but something that is a, um, is one of the, the driving factors of the plot in the novel is based on the reality of him discovering uh, the cave of swimmers on the Gilfkubir Plateau. Um, he was the first uh, European to find this cave, which is close to the modern border of Egypt and Libya. Mm -hmm. um, and as you may guess from the name of the cave, the cave contains petroglyphs with these, these images of people swimming in water. Like you do. Well, it's also thought that perhaps this is a, um, well, it was argued um, it, between 1934 and the present that this wasn't actually evidence of a green Sahara. It was evidence of the sort of myth that would eventually manifest in the Nile River Valley as the waters of, of Nut. Oh, uh, like these are, these are deceased souls swimming in the waters of Nut, but Almashi is like Almashi's like nah. There was a lake. They were swimming. I mean, it could be both. But yeah, that's a, that's a cool other explanation. But but also, this was something that was used to to naysay before there were the oh, the well. historical like hydromorphology studies. Yeah. Um, but 
Yes. <laughs> Sorry. All I can think of is the, the just wretched movie Sahara with Matthew McConaughey, where he finds cave paintings of a civil war in Africa, like in the Sahara of a civil war battleship that he's looking for. What? Um Man, what? maybe maybe since since um, quarantine times have limited our plans for our hundredth episode, maybe that's the movie that we watch together and do an episode <laughs> about because it is egregious. Oh, that sounds terrible! It's so bad. Um, well, not Penelope Cruz's finest work. Don't say that. But Steve Zahn's in it. He's fun. <laughs> I think it's based on a Clive Cussler novel. Oh, my God. Well, these petroglyphs. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> in the Cave of Swimmers um, are thought to be possibly as old as 10,000 years. That's real old. That's so old. And this yeah. would coincide with the earliest evidence of a huge technological development. And my personal favorite technological development, ceramics. Nerd. I know. Um, <laughs> uh, well, a great reason to love ceramics, as as we've discussed on our episode on the dirt. God, I forgot what, what I, the dirt. Jeez. <laughs> the dirt. <laughs> our new podcast. The, the dirt. Uh, on the, the dirt podcast, when we talked about <laughs> ceramics, um, around the that. world, we see pottery emerge when populations shift toward more sedentary lifestyles and start to intensify their exploitation of agricultural or animal resources, whether or not they've actually domesticated anything when they started to stay in one place and focus and manage and, their resources. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. And, you know, you have intensification and extensification where you are doing more intense work in one arena. That's intensification. And then specializing. So I make pottery. You process grasses that's extensification when you are sort of farming it out, as it were. As it were. Um, hey. So in the Fertile Crescent, this is the most famous point where people started using ceramics. Um, that period is known as the Pottery Neolithic, which is considered to have been between 9,000 to 6,000 years ago. Because it's the idea that it spread at one kilometer per year. What? Isn't that a dumb? That's dumb. Yeah. That's, that's like a part of. <laughs> you can't give it a, a like, miles per hour. Speed. Yeah. That like it's coming. It's coming. Da, like that's not how that's not how it works. Da, but the idea was that. Coming, get your clay out. <laughs> the 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 technology had spread the the breadth of the um the Fertile Crescent by about 6,000 years ago is the idea. All right. All right. Um, ceramics appeared much earlier in East Asia. So in uh, what is now mainland China, Japan, and Siberia around 15,000 years ago. So much yeah. earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but here in the Sahara, we have another example of an earlier than the Fertile Crescent ceramic <laughs> technology, which is a big deal because this for a long time, it was put forward that the Fertile Crescent is sort it's of the, the, the cradle of civilization where stuff. Yeah. The cradle yeah. of civilization. And you certainly aren't finding cradles of civilization in places such as the Sahara. But and yet and yet and yet I'm going to read to you from an article by Haisakam et al. in Antiquity, mm. um, which I'll include in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Ahem. 
In Africa, the earliest pottery has been found in the large mountain massifs of the Central Sahara in the Eastern Sahara and the Nile Valley. About 30 carbon-14 and luminescent states have placed the emergence of ceramics in the Sahara and the Nile Valley between the end of the 10th and the beginning of the 9th millennium um, of... The dates are calibrated. Yeah, yeah so. sorry. <laughs> 9th millennium uh, calibrated dates BCE. Yeah. Uh, this can be related to the sudden onset of a warmer and wetter climate in the early Holocene that enabled the resettling of the Sahara after the hyper-arid phase of the last glacial maximum. The Ogolien Away. Okay. Um, the origin of the earliest African pottery is controversial and has been much discussed with three hypothetical scenarios proposed. The first theory places the emergence of ceramics in the Nile Valley based principally on the early exploitation of aquatic resources and wild cereals in this region. Uh, the second suggests an origin somewhere south of the Sahara, but until recently, the oldest finds of sub-Saharan ceramics were only dated to the 8th millennium calibrated dates BCE, both at Lothagam in Kenya and in the Ravin du Hibou at Unjugu in Mali. That's the, the Owl Canyon. <laughs> Ibu specifically is um, an owl w with ears. So like a oh, horned like a owl. Horned owl. Okay. Yeah. Um, if it were the other kind that just has a round head, it would be called a chouette. Aw. Chouette and Ibu. Ibu. Uh, for phase two of its Holocene occupation sequence, a third assumes that pottery was invented by relict populations who had survived in ecological refuge zones of the Sahara during the hyper-arid late Pleistocene. They <laughs> have nothing else to do, I guess. Right. Let's invent like, ceramics. That they, they like hung out. So it was yeah. a um, like a very refugium. much an, an indigenous tradition there. Yeah. Um, so... Those are the three theories surrounding mm -hmm. like how um, ceramics first came about in Africa, specifically in the Sahara. Um, and that article ultimately focused on the Unjugu archaeological complex of what is today southern central Mali, um, which is just on the edge of the Sahel into sub-Saharan Africa. So it's a okay. sort of... Is it, is it a liminal space? It's a it, like clim climatically, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Which, which while not in the Sahara, yields an even older ceramic material. So the effects of the African human period benefited populations beyond those in the Sahara into the Sahel and Sub-Saharan Africa. So everybody was benefiting from which you'd this, expect this, that. Yeah, exactly. It's a ripple and effect. So, yeah, and so this is some extremely early ceramic technology. That's really cool. It's very cool, and I had never heard of Unjugu uh, complexes. I have a question you this. might not know. Yes? Are these ceramics fired, or were they just sort of like um, mud-baked, you know? I don't know. I didn't check. Um, I would assume they well, were they fired so, if, yeah. I would assume they were fired if they got um, radiocarbon dates from them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you did say that. Okay. Because I cool. believe that the dates, I didn't read those other studies that were referenced, but I believe that those dates were obtained from ceramics themselves. Okay. And luminescent dates, like from ceramics themselves, Which not from a you have to do if things. it's been fired. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, meanwhile, 
in the Sahara proper. So we, we've talked about these kind of boundary areas where stuff's happening. Um, and so <laughs> me, what? I'm setting, I'm setting a tone. Uh, so it's popping off on the um, Sahara borderlands. But meanwhile, in the Sahara proper, an archaeological complex known as the Capsian culture, which I have to be very careful not, not to, to misread as Caspian. Caspian or cap, like capsicum. Or capsaicin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that's what I kept that typing. It's a hot and spicy culture. My tom tom. No, Capsian. And so the Capsian culture spread through the Maghreb, which is in northern Africa, between 10,000 and 5,000 years ago. And During Maghreb, period, yes, Ma- yes. Maghreb means... Yeah, I'm, I'm not putting no, the, the correct... means uh, west. Maghreb. Maghreb means west. Maghreb. So it's in... It, <laughs> North. It's Sorry. a hain. It's a hain. <laughs> yeah. So Maghreb means west. So it's hmm. the western part of the Islamic world. So that's why it's North Africa. Mm. So you're like, why mm-hmm. are you saying West if it's actually in the middle of But North it's Africa? in reference to in the, refer- the in- Islamic world. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's actually very helpful. And that's, isn't that a fun fact? That is a fun fact. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, so during this period between 10 and 5,000 years ago, 10,000 and five. Sorry. Every time I do that, it's like, no, it's not 10 years ago. 10,000 and 5,000 years ago. During this period, the environment of the Maghreb. I'm going to pronounce it French. I'm sorry. You can say, you can say Maghreb. Oh. Because it's. <laughs> mm. I'm not going to do that. It but has I, one I of may... the hardest letters in it. So nobody's going to. I mean, I may pronounce it a little bit Frenchified. No, it's okay. fine. Many the environment do. of the Maghreb was open savanna, much like modern Eastern Africa, East Africa, with Mediterranean forests at higher altitudes. The Capsian diet included a wide variety of animals ranging from aurochs. So those are big old cows. A that cows. Are, they're, they're extinct now, but they are they're extinct cows. Yeah. So basically picture a cow, give it huge horns, double it in size and make it cranky. And that's an auroch. Uh, and hartebeest, which are kind of uh, buffalo-y, typey, antelope Yeah, they're, they are. They're, they're jacked antelopes. Yeah, they're they're like, yeah, antelope on steroids. Uh, yeah. And then also to smaller prey like hares and snails. Um, we don't have a whole lot of evidence about the plant component of the diet. But, you know, like many um, ancient diets that we've talked about, we can assume that people ate what was there. During the succeeding Neolithic of Capsian tradition, oh, that's fancy, there is evidence from one site, so take this with a, a grain of a grain sand. of sheep. Grain of that's better, grain of sand. Uh, there's evidence for domesticated and probably imported sheep slash goats. And I say that because when you just have the bones, it's actually incredibly difficult to determine the difference between sheep and goat. Um, nothing is known really about Capsian religion or belief systems, but their burial methods suggest a belief in an afterlife. And that's because uh, we often find we decorative art is widely found at their sites, including figurative and abstract rock art and ochre is found coloring both tools and corpses. Ostrich eggshells were used to make beads and containers. And that's something that you see in many, many different places throughout Africa. It's really, really cool. We should... I don't know if we can devote a whole episode to this, but 
I'd like to talk about ostrich eggshell sometime. Okay. So they were used to make beads and containers because they're they're very, very big and you can use them to basically make a little canteen. You you have something at the top to make a stopper and then you oh, can so it's like a, a Nalgene, a Neolithic Nalgene. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and seashells were used for necklaces. Something that is also seen with the Capsian archaeological material is a shift to an increasing use of microlithics. So here's another round of translate that paragraph. So this is from the two-in-one encyclopedic <laughs> dictionary of archaeology. So <laughs> it's, it's a multi-tool. <laughs> Capsian and Capsian Neolithic. That cultural complex is prominent in inland northern Africa near the present border between Tunisia and Algeria. Its shell midden sites are in the area of the Great Salt Lakes of what is now southern Tunisia, the type site being Jabal al-Makta. Did I, how'd I do? I'm sure there's some consonants in there that I messed up. It looks like there's a... Um, it's fine. Thanks. It's fine. Whatever. The toolkit of the Capsian is a classic example of the industries of the late Wurm glacial period. <laughs> I feel like it's Wurm. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. does. It definitely Vroom. is spelled like a metal spelling of Wurm. <laughs> no, it's, it's V-U-umlaut-R-M, so Wurm, which I think, yeah. Anyway, uh, and is, a, is apparently related to the Gravettian stage of Europe's Perigordian industry, which is specifically named after that region of southwest France where there's a whole lot of Neanderthals. Oh. Um, how, well, I mean, not during the, not during the Gravettian. There's no Gravettians in, I mean, sorry, there's no, <laughs> there's no Neanderthals in the Gravettian. It, that's all modern human, but the Perigord is the, the region of France where there's all, all the Neanderthals. The Capsian was a microlithic tool complex. And then it goes on to just, just be so very specific. But that's less important here than just talking about microlithics in general. So microlithics are often associated with more advanced, and by which I mean later, cultures. So um, not so much with Neanderthals, but you do see it sort of later in human assemblages. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Stone tools get tinier and tinier, and they're made from little bitty flakes that get chipped off of a larger source rock. So as you can imagine, it takes a fair amount of know-how, not to mention very fine motor skills to do this. Microliths are often thought of as a response maybe to material shortage or needing to make tools for larger groups of people. So you're trying to get you know the most bang for your buck, the maximize the amount of tool that you can get from your material. But also, microlithics are often part of composite tools like scythes or multi-point arrows, things like that. So you'd have these these little points, and then you'd use an adhesive of some kind, like um, you know uh, tar or um, sort of pitch from trees, and you'd haft many of them onto some kind of handle to create you know uh, the, whatever tool you need. So I'm I'm not sure which of these scenarios was going on in the Capsian Neolithic, but chances are it was some combination of these factors because this is a pattern we see in lots of places all over the world in the archaeological record. Gradually we get development of, of tool complexes into smaller and smaller and smaller ones, and the tools become more complicated and complex and, and composite. So it's you know it's it's not unique, but it's it's really interesting that we also see it here. That's awesome. Yeah. Tiny, tiny tools. Um, yeah. And some of the, you know, the scale is it, they're very small. Really, you, you really do need some fine motor control to be able to do that. I certainly couldn't. Um, so 
listeners, we're going to take a quick ad break and then uh, we'll, we'll have more for you on, on the Green Sahara. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we're back and uh, we're still on the Sahara. And it's balmy. It is. Gosh, it's wet. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is this Houston or am I in the green Sahara? Local jokes get local work. <laughs> uh, so what was happening in the Sahara during these few thousand years of humid savanna pottery making mega lake bliss? So um, rather than the years and years and years of podcast that it would take for us to talk about the whole story, we're going to basically do... The highlights. We're going to do a rapid fire round of developments that occurred during the African humid period. And first up, boy, we're we're starting off with a bang. We got boats. Well, we've got right. Well, really, we've got boat. We got yeah, boat we, and implied bo- boats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you'll see why it implies boats. So this is pulled from an article from the Africa Times that came out in 2018. Quote: Nigerian Minister Mohamed Abare said that an a uh, 8,500-year-old canoe found near the village of Defuna some 30 years ago is in the final stages of preparation before it goes on exhibit. It has been kept in the National Museum at Damaturu, one of the Nigerian museum system's several sites. The canoe is made from black African mahogany and is 8 meters long, so, you know, 20, 24 feet-ish. It was designated a historic treasure in 2014 and was originally found by a Fulani herdsman named Mala Miao in 1987 when he was digging a well in the Yobe state region that borders Niger. Nigerian authorities say the find, with its age confirmed through radiocarbon dating in Europe, created a new understanding of the innovation and advancements in Africa's early civilizations. The only known boats in the world that are older were found in Pes, Netherlands, and uh, Noyant-sur-Seine in France. Peter Brunig, the head of African archaeology at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, specializes in early societies of West Africa and has said that the Defuna canoe shows sophistication and, quote, elegant form, end quote, that is superior to the boat found at Pes. 
And so uh, Brunning says, quote, it is highly probable that the, that the Defuna boat does not represent the beginning of a tradition, but had already undergone a long development and that the origins of water transport in Africa lie even further back in time. And so that quote is from a much earlier paper in 1996. And that totally makes sense. For one thing, this boat is made out of mahogany. That's a really, really hard, dense wood. So it's really difficult to carve. It's not something that you just sort of pick up as a beginner. And also when technologies kind of start off, they usually don't start off good. Yeah. This is a really good boat. (laughs) The other thing about the Defuna canoe um, that makes it very, very cool is that it's associated and other things that have been excavated alongside it are associated with the contemporary, well, what they're guessing are contemporary traditions around Lake Chad. But Lake Chad is more than 100 miles away from Dafuna. <laughs> How I long would it, it take on, by bike? On Google Earth. I didn't look into that. <laughs> um, but it's it's definitely more than 100 miles from the, the current shorelines of Lake Chad. Um, but at this point, eight-ish thousand years ago, Lake Chad would have been much bigger. And what is known as... Lake Mega Chad. Mega Chad. <laughs> and so was the was the Defuno canoe used on a on yeah, like, local was it, lakes was or it was, was it on the shore? Yeah, <laughs> was it time? on the shores of Lake Mega Chad or was it a a sort of um riverine systems like among these lakes? Like I don't know enough about that, but it's something that ties it to um other place so this technology was not localized on to a community level like it was no it people was, had like aquaculture and, and yeah it, it is supposed and they were so some have used the phrase the term aqualithic oh. to <laughs> which would seem to contradict itself really yeah right yeah but aqualithic to describe the um the complexes here but mm. Um, rounding out the technologies of the African humid period, let's take a moment to slow down and moo out the window at some, <laughs> at some of the earliest animal domestication in the region. Cattle. Yeah. Spe- specifically um, aurochs. Yeah. I, I wish there were still aurochs, sort of. When I was little, mm-hmm. there was a book that was the ABCs of extinct animals. That's um, a good A. And A was Auroch. Um, So I'm going to read this. Um, I'm going to read part of this abstract from an article in Nature, which will hopefully go better than the last time I read from an abstract in Nature. <laughs> that made zero sense to me. Um, this one's good. That's okay. It's about cows. How hard can it be? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that was facetious. Go ahead. <laughs> Quite hard. Um In the prehistoric Green Sahara of Holocene, North Africa, in contrast to the Neolithic of Europe and Eurasia, a reliance on cattle, sheep and goats emerged as a stable and widespread way of life long before the first evidence for domesticated plants or settled village farming communities. 
The remarkable rock art found widely across the region depicts cattle herding among early Saharan pastoral groups and includes rare scenes of milking. However, these images can rarely be reliably dated. Although the faunal evidence provides further confirmation of the importance of cattle and other domesticates, the scarcity of cattle bones makes it impossible to ascertain herd structures via kill-off patterns, thereby precluding interpretations of whether dairying was practiced. Because Hmm. pottery production begins in early Northern Africa, the potential exists to investigate diet and subsistence practices using molecular and isotopic analyses of absorbed food residues. This approach has been successful in determining the chronology of dairying beginning in the Fertile Crescent of the Near East and its spread across Europe. Here, we report the first unequivocal chemical evidence based on the values of the major alkalonic acids of the milk fat for the adoption of dairying practices by prehistoric Saharan African people in the 5th millennium BC. Interpretations are supported by a new database of modern ruminant animal facts collected from Africa. These findings confirm the importance of lifetime products such as milk in in early Saharan pastoralism and provide an evolutionary context for the emergence of lactase permanence in Africa. Persistence. Did I say permanence? You did. The emergence of lactase persistence in Africa. Yeah. End quote. So so they found residues on some of that very early pottery that confirmed that whatever was in those ceramics, it was milky. Yeah, it had milk fat in it. And, ah, cool. and so they're showing that by... Uh, 5,000 by the the 5th millennium BCE, they were definitely relying on uh, presumably domesticated cattle because... Well, yeah, if it lets you get close enough to milk it. Exactly. Chances are. Yeah. <laughs> that's your cow. Uh, so this is some, this is some early, this is some early domestication and this is that's really so cool. cool. And yeah. also, uh, also cool is the topic of lactase persistence because lactase persistence is the opposite of lactose intolerance. Yes. Uh, because you you continue to produce lactase, which is the enzyme that breaks down lactose. Yeah. So for those of you like me who are lactose intolerant, I just choose to ignore it. Um, that which, is technically what is supposed to happen for mammals. After a certain period, you are weaned. You well, are no longer receiving milk. And today, only about 35% of people exhibit lactase persistence after weaning. Mm-hmm. Um Meaning that they can actually digest milk fats after weaning. Which, um, sorry, but the lactose is a sugar that occurs in milk and um, lactase, as with most molecules that end in ACE, is an enzyme that breaks down that milk sugar. So when you don't continue to produce lactase, what happens is that lactose, that sugar, doesn't get broken down and travels down into your intestines where it tends to ferment, which produces the sort of bloaty, gassy feelings that people who are lactose intolerant experience. So it's basically, it's fermentation. Oh. Um, unpleasant. Making, making tummy wine in there. <laughs> You're making tummy milk wine. Gross. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cattle, or aurochs in this case, may have been domesticated even earlier in Africa than the above study suggests, even though this is kind of contentious. The earliest domesticated cattle in Africa have been found at Capuleti, Algeria, um, dating to about six, like 6,500 Italian years before present. Name. Um, oh, Italy, Italy colonized Algeria, didn't they? They, no, the French did. The French did. Capuleti? It, Italy colonized Tunisia. Oh, and well, also sort of next door. 
Yeah, no, it may, it would make sense. It makes sense. Uh, it just everybody. It's a, it's I mean, everybody was was kicking around in the Maghreb. Yeah, Algeria's next to Tunisia. It was yeah. fine. So, um, dating to about six thousand five hundred years before present, but potentially domesticated boss remains <laughs> are found. Like at, a boss. Ah, <laughs> uh, like boobs, boobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we have to explain that. So. Boops boops is a type of fish, but it's <laughs> My actually favorite fish. It's also it's actually boops boops, which means yeah. cow eyes because it's got big old eyes that look like cow yeah. eyes. Yeah, but it's, it's big boops. soulful eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the the um, the Latin name, the scientific name of this particular, it's a very small fish, the little silver fish. It's, Greek. it's a Greek name. Yeah, and it's it's boops boops. Greek. Good story. <laughs> um, there are boss remains found at African sites in what is now Egypt, such as Nabta Playa. Uh, and the Arcasibia, uh, as long as 9,000 years ago. Early cattle, I know, right? Early cattle remains have also been found at Wadi El Arab and El Barra, um, dating to 8,500 to 6,000 BCE and 6,000 to 5,500 BCE, respectively. They huh. were up to some stuff with in, the, in the Sahara. No, just like speak, like sort of. Overall, oh, just in terms of like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in people terms of were behavior. up to yeah. some stuff because it was a great place. It was a, a great place to you didn't have to focus on surviving. They were focused on thriving. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> some kind of inspirational poster. <laughs> Hang in there, buddy. It's a cow hanging from a branch. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I hate to take us away from the important cow stories. I really do. But we've really not talked much about the actual cow people. Cow trees? Herodotus, the cow trees. Mm. Workshop that, maybe. Okay. All right. <laughs> Herodotus. Herodotus? We're cutting we're we're cutting all of this. Nope. Uh well, we've really not talked much about actual people in the area. So who was there? How'd they get there? Uh, well, if you're looking for definitive answers, spoiler alert, first of all, why turn to us? Um, but nobody really fully understands the human genetic diversity in Africa, period. And this particular region is also not very well understood. But we'll take you through a bit of what is known, and that's excerpted from a 2016 paper in the American Journal of Human Genetics. So a quote... With 200 ethnic groups and more than 120 indigenous languages and dialects, Chad has extensive ethno-linguistic diversity. It has been suggested that this diversity can be attributed to Lake Chad, which has attracted human populations to its fertile surroundings since prehistoric times, especially after the progressive desiccation of the Sahara starting around 7,000 years ago. We analyzed four Chadian populations with different ethnicities, languages, and modes of subsistence. Our samples are likely to capture recent genetic signals of migration and mixing and also have the potential to show ancestral genomic relationships that are shared among Chadians and other populations. An additional major question relates to the prehistoric Eurasian migrations to Africa. What was the extent of these migrations? How have they affected African genetic diversity? And what present-day populations harbor genetic signals from the ancient migrating Eurasians? So the article then goes on to explain their, their methods and all of that, but we will skip right to the punchline. So, again, pulling from this article, we found evidence of early Eurasian backflow to Africa in people speaking the unclassified isolate Laal language. Lal? 
lol, in southern Chad and estimate that this occurred uh, 4,750 to 7,200 years ago. Many populations today derive their genomes from ancient African-Eurasian admixtures. So that's that's a linguistics callback. It's a language isolate. Yeah. yeah. Hey. Um, so, I mean, really, the, the takeaway is that people moved around a lot. <laughs> and a big green lake-filled region with lots of plants and animals is a really desirable habitat. So it's hardly surprising that this region would attract migrating populations from elsewhere and it turns out uh, some of that elsewhere was Eurasia around 7,000 years ago. Something else cool that I found in the article, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote again. Egyptians had a population bottleneck that was much more pronounced than that of other Africans, but not as sharp as that of Eurasian populations. And the Tubu, which is a, a local group um, sort of in central northern Africa, and Ethiopians shared a very similar pattern during the bottleneck. They were close to other Africans, but had a somewhat sharper decrease in population size. We would not expect such different fluctuations in population sizes at 60,000 years ago in populations who shared a common origin during this period. For example, all Eurasians trace their origin to a population who exited Africa around 60,000 years ago. Okay, so translation time again. First of all, a population bottleneck is something that happens to decrease genetic diversity within a population. So it's that basically the population is staying in the same place, but something happens to remove a significant portion of that population. So it, it could be just sort of um, climatic change, right? So survival could be more difficult. It could be disease. It could be something human caused, like a genocide that can cause a genetic bottleneck. But basically what happens is that a portion of the population is wiped out, therefore getting rid of any unique genes that that portion of the population may have possessed. So in removing that section of the population, overall, the population becomes less genetically diverse. And you can mm -hmm. see that kind of happening in the in the um, the record of the human genome for certain populations. So the, the, my understanding is that this pattern that they see in this article suggests that the Tubu and Ethiopian populations didn't share a common origin, and that's kind of cool because geographically they're relatively near each other. I mean, sort of like Africa is really really big, but right. if you look at a map. Um, and in, in this paper, which we'll link to in the show notes, um, they show a map where they, they pinpoint where these populations are located and they are relatively close to one another. So in terms of populations moving in and out of regions, it would seem that whoever ended up populating these areas and becoming what, what are you know, now the, the Tubu and Ethiopian populations, they came from different places. So oh, you, that's you very know, cool. the genetics yeah. can trace that. Yeah. Um, and then just to get back to the realm of sort of myth and yes, things. Yes, take me away. <laughs> um, there, I read a just a sort of offhand, a few offhand comments about this, which is very curious and possibly very spurious. Uh, the idea Curiouser that... Curiouser and spuriouser. Yeah. Um, that there are these um, very consistent myths across um, like widely dispersed populations cultures, uh, yeah yeah and and cultures that that look to there being like a golden age or a a, a period like the garden of eden or a sort of elysium or these places where there are paradise that yeah there's this idea of paradise and there's some think that this is this could be um 
a root of that. Like this looking, could be a root of that. back to like mega Chad. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and that, that when you have these times. Uh, populations that are migrating in and out of the region, perhaps some of those that left again, that took with them that admixture of mm, genetic mm-hmm. material, mm-hmm. Um, they could also have taken um, a oral tradition that evolved into stories of a paradise from Remember which where we used to live. Left. That was so good. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, there was this, there was once this time and like this sort of explaining why it's not like that now or explaining how it could be like that again. And so that's something that is also when you're looking at sort of deep time, the mm-hmm. way that when we look at sort of the spread of languages or the spread of genetic material, like these are things right. that are deep, deep time. Thousands of years. And um, oral traditions factor into that, too. Well, that's neat. I mean, yeah. there's no we, we don't have any way. Of oh, no. But that's just like language. a fun thing to think about. Just sort of a Something romantic to thought. Make you go, huh? Yeah. And so uh, take like a that. few more moments to go, huh? Um, <laughs> while we take this short break and then we'll come back where I'll tell you about the end. Oh. <laughs> this is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay. Well, now we're back, and you know how we kept saying that things were happening until about 5,000 years ago? We're talking about 5,000 years ago, and... Things well, were great until about 5,000 we years ago. Well, here we are at about 5,000 years ago where the Earth wobbled. Yep. The, the orbit changed slightly and, and everything boy, fell apart. Create some problems. Yeah. So Just a um, little wobble. I'm going to read some excerpts from a 2015 nature paper. Mm-hmm. Conflicting records suggest that termination of the humid period either occurred quickly within a matter of centuries or occurred over the course of millennia. (laughs) It's like, yeah, those are the two choices. Quickly or not. (laughs) It is similarly similarly unclear whether the termination was uniform or varied spatially and temporally. Okay. Yep. (laughs) The end of the African humid period was locally abrupt at many sites, transitioning from wet to dry conditions much faster than expected from this simple linear theory, which, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because if you think like, oh, it's getting drier, it's getting drier, that it would be like a creep. But in fact, it could just be, it was sustainable last year, this year we can't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, So, or, you know, this, this 
century or this decade. Well, yeah, whatever the exactly. scale. Like within yeah. this lifetime, like within this generation. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, for it's, sure. Yeah. Um, back to the, the article. Hence, some additional nonlinear mechanism must have been active at these specific sites. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, the the paper does not go on to enlighten its readers as to what this mechanism might be. It just says, well, there's something else going on. I love, like, something happened. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I mean, it is important to say, like, this theory has been that the change was gradual. We're actually looking at it now. And so what they're saying is, well, no, in these specific sites, it actually wasn't. Something else is going on. TBD. Um, And radiocarbon dating of over 1,000 archaeological sites across North Africa reveals how profoundly the end of the humid phase affected human populations. These dates, which record human occupation at these sites, indicate that North Africa was rapidly depopulated between 6,300 and 5,200 years ago as dry conditions set in. Within centuries, sedentary populations appeared along the Nile, marking the emergence of urban and socially stratified pharaonic culture and the construction of the first pyramids. (laughs) We've talked about those first pyramids yeah. <laughs> yeah it took a few tries it is an it is noteworthy that most of the north african population decline occurred in less than a millennium suggesting that people like local climate can respond non-linearly to climate change <laughs> yep which um Thank so you. this is this this may harken back to um when we had our episode the climbs they are a change in yeah and looking at climate Still proud change of that title big, huh I, yeah um that this is something that even if it's like regardless of how quickly it happened in terms of like concrete time, like elapsed time, the yeah. impacts were felt quickly. Yeah. And so That's that you will have. Yeah. So that you can have something where people are like, ugh, it's not as great as it used to be. Or like, ugh, it's not. Ugh, OK, we're doing it. We're doing it. And then. We you can't. just can't anymore that there's a yeah. there's a critical mass sort of situation where like things compound to a point where populations are no longer oh, sustainable. Man. People you have want to, to talk leave. about criticality sometime. That was like a third of my dissertation. We can do that. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, and so people some people moved, which by they moved to the Nile because there remained water there and Mm -hmm. it was the end of the African human period that let basically created Egypt Egypt, as we know it ancient Egypt happen Um, it wouldn't have happened had people it probably would not have happened had people been able to stay dispersed across the rest of the the continent maybe we would have had something like that culture elsewhere around yeah exactly like Megachad yeah um, ooh, that's ooh. We could have had alternate like, reality fiction. Yeah, and so, um, or you have people who just pe- perhaps people did die due to lack of resources, or perhaps mm-hmm. family planning changed, and so yeah, populations shrank. People people opted to have fewer children, or people or just had fewer children, yeah. forwent children. Yeah. Um, and so over a couple generations, that can have a huge impact on a population mm-hmm. um, or people just leave or they just change because they're like, well, we got to we can't folk. We can't do what we've been doing. We got to focus on something else. And in the archaeological record, it looks really sudden, even though it may have taken it may not have been noticed necessarily from like parent to child. Huh. Yeah. Um, so what does that mean for? The future. 
uh, specifically the future of the Sahara, because we found an article, and by we I mean Amber, um, that modeled kind of the the possible futures of vegetation distribution in the Sahara, which is really cool, but like, what a niche. Well, because also the the Green Sahara period happened because of global warming. I'm sure there are people out there who are saying, because, you know, what I just described might sound familiar to people um, in thinking about climate (laughs) change now. But what went from the previous hyper arid conditions into the Green Sahara, like the African human period. Yeah. So the idea is like, could that happen again? Yeah. Be like, oh, is it going to flip a switch? And there are people that that think that you know, oh, it's going to flip a switch and we'll go back into a glacial maximum that, you know, it's going to get hot enough and then it'll trip and then we'll get cold again because that's how cycles work. A new ice age. Uh, and the, But there are also people that are saying like, oh, well, an increase in, in greenhouse gases led to, because it was all that, all that carbon dioxide got gobbled up by the, the grasslands mm-hmm, and yeah. the savanna trees that... And it just made it made it great. So maybe the Sahara is going to yeah. bounce back. What that article say? So uh, <laughs> for those of you listening anxiously, um, <laughs> don't get excited. So this article basically modeled the future of the distribution of vegetation in the Sahara. So they used the climatic record of the past 9,000 years on Earth. They compared it to various simulations, first based just on the Earth's orbit and consequently different exposures to the sun. And then they compared it to um, CO2 and greenhouse gas effects. And basically what they conclude is that maybe some additional grassland could extend into, into the Sahara, but that's not very likely. And it's also very unlikely that the Sahara would, will ever have another humid phase like it did 7,000-ish years ago. So the good times may not come around again, but the fact that they were there and the fact that they changed really, first of all, um, led us to learn about some really interesting and, and innovative human behavior in areas where it was not thought that that human behavior occurred. So those, those ceramics and domestication and all of that. And like we just said, the, the changes in the, the desiccation of that area led to people moving to other areas and and creating the cultures that that we know as ancient Egypt and and presumably other African cultures on that continent. So. Yeah, and that this that this place, like this time and this place, had an impact on ultimately on Eurasian populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's something that is far. It's far it has a far greater reach than i than like even i realized before i started this episode being like i want to do the african humid period and you're like okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm always on board for when you choose episodes because they're usually they're usually very informative if, if not necessarily you know bouncy <laughs> <laughs> but this one's pretty fun no it was very fun i really liked this one i learned a lot yeah, so, I learned a and lot. And I got too. to I got to chat out my science. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back in your ears very soon with more of our regular weekly content. And you can also find us on social media where we post news stories and goofy jokes and the occasional pithy and intelligent comment. 
How about that? On Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that ends up on our website, thedirtpod.com. And you can go there to see all those goodies. And if you are in a position to do so right now, um, buy yourself some merch. Yeah, um, we got or, mugs, we got t-shirts, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, or you can sponsor an episode all your very own. Mm-hmm. Um, if, on the topic of your choice. Yeah. Yeah. And if, again, if you are in a position to do so, but please take care of yourselves and, and your loved ones first. But if you do want to support us on a recurring basis, you can do so at a number of tiers at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. But meanwhile, we are so thankful that you're listening, that that you like us, that you support us, that you leave us reviews and stars on uh, Apple podcasts and all the other platforms. We really, really appreciate it. We love doing this and we especially love, you know, creating content when people might need it. Yeah. So, so thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Yeah. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Stay safe, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Moo. Moo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.